It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's still January sale time. That means you can subscribe to New Scientist for just £12.50. Our January sale includes special offers on digital packages and print-only packages. For print-only, you can subscribe for just £12.50 for six issues, and for digital, it's £16.25. Digital subscribers get unlimited access to everything on newscientist.com. They get unrestricted access to the New Scientist app, including our Essential Guide series. There's free online events, our weekly Editor's Highlights newsletter, and there's access to free accredited courses from the New Scientist Academy. Go to newscientist.com slash jansale2023 to snap up this bargain. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is the show that brings you a curated selection of the essential stories of the week. Our aim is to feed your curiosity. I'm your host, Penny Sarchet. And I'm Rowan Hooper. Welcome to the show. This week, we're joined by New Scientist journalists from Chicago, New York and London, respectively. We've got Leah Crane, James Deneen and Michael LePage. Hello, all of you. Hi. Hello. Coming up on the show this week, we have a journey to the centre of the earth with Leah. Looking forward to that. And we're also checking in on California after the intense rainstorms that they've had out there. We'll also be talking about a possible tipping point in the Atlantic Ocean that could trigger a big shift in climate in the UK basically like one we had in the Little Ice Age, but we'd still get extreme summers. And models suggest this change in the ocean could happen even at the warming we're seeing now. We're also hearing about a new study showing why SSRIs used to treat depression can end up dulling all emotions, good or bad. And those two stories are not actually linked. They just <laughs> came, they just came out like that. Um, we're also discussing the possibility of life on exoplanets. So, uh, yeah, it's not all bad. Brilliant. Uh, But we do start with um, some other good news. This is actually relating to winter infections. So, Michael, you've been looking at the prospects for preventing infections by the respiratory virus, RSV. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so people may have heard a lot about RSV recently because it's one of these viruses causing the so-called triple-demic this winter in the Northern Hemisphere. But it doesn't usually get much attention because it's thought of as just another cold virus. And actually, for most of us, it usually is just another cold virus. But in the very young or the very old, it can cause really serious infections. And despite many efforts since the virus was first identified back in the 1950s, there's still no vaccine. But that is hopefully about to change. Yeah, that's the great news that we will almost certainly have a vaccine approved soon. In fact, we might even have more than one. So in the past few months, three vaccines have shown to be effective at preventing RSV infections in elderly. 
And one of these three vaccines has also been shown to protect babies aged six months or less. And wait, that's not all. There's also a long-lasting antibody treatment that can protect babies from infections over an entire winter that's already been approved in Europe and is awaiting approval in the US. So we're going from having no way of protecting against RSV to having all these different options. That's brilliant news. But if researchers have long been trying to develop RSV vaccines, how come we've suddenly got three successful ones all at once like buses? <laughs> yep, that's what I was thinking of, buses as well. Yes, to cut a long story short, the, the main protein on the outside of the virus, uh, that's the obvious vaccine target, this protein can change its shape and that makes it hard for the immune system to target it. But around a decade ago, a team at the US National Institutes of Health worked out the structure of this protein And that then enabled them to develop a synthetic form that's locked into the shape we want the immune system to target. And the NIH then said to the big pharma companies, here you go, here's this protein, go make a vaccine from it. And so these three vaccines that have been successful in trials are all based on that same protein. Two of them consist of the protein itself, and the third is an mRNA vaccine, i.e. it tells our body how to make that protein. So uh, essentially, we can thank some just really clever vaccine design here. Yeah, I mean, uh, back in August last year in podcast 130, I talked about the importance of protein structure and why DeepMind's AlphaFold system for predicting protein structure was so significant. And this is an example of why understanding a protein structure can make such a difference. So we had the first vaccine trials for RSV way back in the 1960s, and there's just been failure after failure after failure until now. And now we've got these vaccines that are based on understanding the protein structure. And can you remind us how much we need these vaccines? Like you say, it can be really bad for young children and older people. It does actually kill children, doesn't it? Yes, yes. So the latest estimate by Harish Nair at Edinburgh University is that RSV kills around 100,000 children around the world every year, and possibly as many as 200,000. So it's a, wow. a really serious toll. And of course, most of these deaths are in babies less than six months old, which is particularly terrible. And of course, for all the deaths, there are lots more children who become seriously ill. So does this mean then with that sort of flurry of vaccines coming through that one could soon be approved for children? Well, this is the part that's a bit surprising, actually. So the vaccine that worked really well in this trial at protecting babies for up to six months after birth, that was given to the pregnant mothers and not actually to the babies. And so what's happening here is that when the mothers are vaccinated, they start making these antibodies and those pass through the placenta into their babies and they keep circulating in the blood of the babies for several months after they're born. And you can achieve the same effect by making antibodies in a factory and then injecting them directly into babies just after they're born. That's how the protective antibody I mentioned earlier works. So these new vaccines are going to be tested in children too, but it it could turn out that the best protection actually comes either from vaccinating pregnant women or from giving babies this new antibody. There's a bit of a precedent there with whooping cough in this country that you vaccinate the mums just to protect their babies. That's really interesting. But what about the elderly then, older people? Are the other vaccines going to be for them? Yeah, so we've got these three successful trials in elderly, and it's looking really likely that at least one of these vaccines could be approved sometime this year even. Uh, So that might be, say, given to everyone aged over 60. We'll just have to wait to see what the recommendations for use are. But with so many deaths every year in elderly as well as in young children, this this could really make a huge difference. And of course, if it prevents cases in the elderly, it's also going to help us all by reducing stress on the health care services during winter. 
Leia, I've seen a few headlines saying that the rotation of Earth's core is changing direction, which seems like quite a, quite a massive deal. What's going on? <laughs> it would be if that was happening. Um, <laughs> right. The core is not changing the direction. The only thing that would make you think that is if you could look down straight at the core from the surface, you would see that it maybe used to be spinning a little bit faster than Earth, and now it's spinning a little bit slower. So it used to be spinning a little bit to the right with respect to the surface, and now it's spinning a little bit to the left. But what's actually happening is it's just slowing down by a tiny amount. Okay, so just you better give us a bit of a primer on the, the planetary structure here. Yeah, absolutely. So starting from the surface inward, you have the crust, then the mantle, and then you have the core, but the core has two parts. It has a liquid outer layer and then a solid inner layer. So what we're talking about here is the solid inner layer of the core that's just sort of floating there in the liquid. Okay. And we know that it's changing its speed because of like measurements of earthquakes, right? Yeah. What they do is they find pairs or sets of earthquakes that are almost identical, that are from the same location, maybe a fault that opens and closes and opens again. And they track the, the seismic waves and the waveform of that as it travels through the core. And so when those waves are different, we can tell that the core has moved or changed. So um, this is just of sort of interest to planetary scientists. It's nothing we need to, there's no implications for everyday life in this, right? Yeah, probably not. The slowing down of the core will change some magnetic fields. It might even change the length of day on the surface, but only by a tiny, tiny, tiny <laughs> fraction of a second. Okay, okay good. I just wanted, yeah, I just wanted to over to correct the overreaction that I'd seen about this paper. And while you're here, though, there's another story that you've been reporting on about exoplanets, and that's got implications perhaps for life in the galaxy. What's that one about? Yeah, so that story is about the habitable zone, which people sometimes call the Goldilocks zone because it's not too hot for liquid water on the surface of a planet or too cold. It's just right. But the sort of bad news is we might be overestimating the amount of planets that are actually habitable or that actually have liquid water mm -hmm. because as a star evolves over time, of course, it puts out more or less energy and its habitable zone changes. So a lot of those planets, up to 74% of them, probably didn't get into the habitable zone until later on in their lifetime. So they were they were frozen because they're outside it and they, they warm up as the, their star gets hotter, as it gets older. Yeah, so some of them were, would have been frozen. They would have been born on the sort of outer edge and some of them would have been really hot. So the really hot ones would actually be more of a problem because they might have had all of their water boiled off before they got into the habitable zone. Yeah. Whereas the really cold ones, maybe they're just melting down a little bit. That could be okay. Are you worried about this, Leia? I mean, because there are still loads of planets out there, even in our galaxy, that are probably in their habitable zones for a long time, aren't there? And then, you know, as we always talk about the, the moons in our solar system that have their own energy sources, you know, we can imagine life getting going on those quite easily. So what about NASA, That the NASA dude that you spoke to, you know, are they worried? <laughs> Um, I don't think this is cause for concern, really, for anyone. It's more of a thing that we have to take into account mm. when we're figuring out what planets to look at for potential signs of life. Um, and it might actually help us narrow that down because right now we've got, as you said, like gazillions of them. Mm. And it might mean that there's less possibility for life out there in the universe. 
On the other hand, the universe is so absolutely colossal, both in space and in time, that I'm not concerned at the idea that it will never exist because some planets aren't in the habitable zone for their whole lives. And it's time for a quick break. The Royal Society of Chemistry have launched their books on a new publishing platform to enhance users' digital experience. The new platform, created by leading independent publishing partner Silverchair, is a result of months of collaboration and testing. With an intuitive format, better discovery and an improved reading experience, users can benefit from better functionality to interact with content from the Royal Society of Chemistry, such as split-screen reading, allowing researchers to simultaneously view figures and tables alongside the relevant text. And for the first time, you can also buy digital books directly from the RSC, including their textbooks and popular science books. To access their new platform and browse over 2,000 books that cover the breadth of the chemical sciences, head to rsc.li books. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And we're back. And James, let's talk about California because it finally has a dry forecast after just weeks of intense rain there. There's been flooding and disaster declarations across much of the state. Yeah, well, so the state does now have a dry forecast, but still very much recovering from the aftermath of the flooding and the storm, which led to at least 20 deaths and possibly a billion dollars or more in damages. A silver lining of all that water, though, is that it did take the edge off a worst-in-a-century drought impacting the state. Although the drought and the state's larger water crisis is far from over, especially as these swings between wet extremes and longer periods of intervening dry years are expected to become more the norm with climate change. In the short term, though, the reservoirs are topped up, at least a lot of them, and snowpack is way above average for this time of year. And that should mean the state won't have a surface water drought in 2023. But things are more complicated when it comes to the state's groundwater, which has seen huge losses from a combination of drought and a century of overpumping. And experts told me that one wet year, no matter how wet, won't solve that problem. And so why is groundwater still so depleted? Is it because, you know, the intense rain just sort of rushes off the surface when you get this period of flooding after drought? It's both because of the amount of groundwater lost. One study has it that losses of groundwater in California are larger than the amount of water stored in all of the state's reservoirs. So it's a, it's a century of overdraft. A few really wet storms aren't going to 
fix that. But also <laughs> yeah. it is this problem that most of the water runs off into the ocean, runs off of pavement and basically gets lost. Although there are some really interesting efforts going on in the state to figure out better ways to capture more of that water during really wet years by doing things like pumping them into aquifers or using improved weather forecasting to increase the amount of water that reservoirs can safely store. And it's worth mentioning too that beyond the issue with groundwater, even with the recent deluge, California remains set to cut the water it gets from the Colorado River Basin, which has been depleted to record low levels due to a mega drought in the U.S. Southwest. The Colorado River Basin has still seen above average snow recently, but that's nowhere near enough to fill extremely low reservoirs along that river. And something to look out for on at the end of this month, on the 31st, states are supposed to announce how they're going to make necessary cuts to water they use from the Colorado River, though they missed a previous deadline mandated by the federal government. And you mentioned climate change. What are climate scientists saying about the storms? Can we attribute them to climate change? Yeah, so I, climate scientists I spoke with say that the variability of California's climate is increasing with both wetter and drier extremes. They've been called weather whiplashes. And these whiplashes really stress a water system that was designed largely to deal with more regular swings between wet and dry periods. Another change too is snowpack, which is a major store for California's water, but with more warming, more precipitation falls as rain instead of snow, and that's harder to capture and put to use. Mm. Um, so all that's to say California's problems with water, both too much of it and not enough, are far from over. Now, the cover story of New Scientist magazine last week was on new ideas about what causes depression and, and how these ideas are inspiring new treatments for it. And this week, our reporter Claire Wilson has been writing about another really interesting finding relating to depression. Yeah, so the most commonly used types of antidepressant are these things, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs, and Prozac is by far the most well-known of those, the brand name Prozac. So they're thought to work by increasing levels of, of serotonin in the brain. But, you know, one of the side effects of this, of the antidepressant use, is that they can dull all your emotions, not just the bad ones. Yeah, uh, so up to half of people taking antidepressants experience an unwanted dampening of both positive and negative emotions. So to investigate this, a team led by Barbara Sahakian at the University of Cambridge looked at SSRI's emotion dampening effects in people who don't have depression. And in this study, they got people to either take SSRIs or placebo, and then they were assessed after three weeks. Yeah, so with the assessment, one task they gave the study group was to measure how well they learned from rewards, and people had to choose between two different stimuli over and over again. And through trial and error, they you, you know you get to learn that one stimulus will lead to a reward more often than the other. And then the probabilities of reward for each stimulus switch, and the participants have to relearn, basically. And what happened is that the people who'd been on antidepressants were less sensitive to the stimuli switch, 23% less sensitive. So not hugely, but it was a difference between those ones on antidepressants and those taking the placebo. 
So this suggests that their sensitivity to rewards was flattened and Sahakian says the finding suggests that SSRIs reduce people's sensitivity to rewards and other pleasurable experiences. But, you know, of course, they can also blunt the intensity of negative feelings. It reminds me a little bit here of the contraceptive pill because it took decades there to confirm side effects that were commonly reported by those taking it. And certainly we've known for a while that many people report this kind of thing when taking SSRIs. But as Sahakian told Claire, I hope this doesn't make doctors more cautious about prescribing antidepressants as they're extremely important drugs. She said, I hope it would make doctors have a discussion with patients about their potential side effects. We've got a couple of bonus episodes this week I wanted to flag up here. First, uh, me and our environment reporter Madeleine Carf have been talking to climate scientist Tim Lenton of the University of Exeter. Tim's been on the podcast before and he's just contributed to a research paper that suggests governments could trigger a mass shift to plant-based diets simply by serving more vegan burgers in schools and hospitals. So we chatted to Tim about that and the power of leveraging these positive tipping points to bring about large-scale change. And it's really worth listening to the whole conversation. We spoke, I mean, amongst other things, about how the Bezos Earth Fund are now thinking about this and getting involved in funding ways to trigger these kinds of tipping points. And we did also talk about the old-fashioned negative tipping points, and one that doesn't get mentioned as much as, say, like the Amazon or Antarctic ice is the Atlantic Ocean Conveyor. And in particular, there's something called deep convection in the Labrador Sea, and that's sinking of water from the surface to the bottom of the ocean. And if that switches off, um, well, here's what Tim Lenton said. If the sinking of of water from the surface of the Labrador Sea to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean were to switch off, and models say that could happen at near the present level of global warming and unfold in a decade, well, that, that creates a transition like the transition to the Little Ice Age was in Europe, but it happens on top of global warming. So what you get is a more, much more seasonal climate here. We'd have much more severe winter snowstorms, colder, harsher winters, yet we'd probably still probably have more intense heatwave summers. And uh, our infrastructure, we're just not equipped for that. So mm. those sort of things need policymakers to like switch on and we need to do some proper work assessing those risks and and possibly um, having some preparation strategies just in case the worst happens. And as Maddie remarked after that, you'd think the government should have a Cobra crisis meeting about this. Um, That was a really interesting chat with Tim Lenton, so do check that out. And we've got another great bonus podcast this week. This is about the new HBO show, The Last of Us. Uh, It's a fungal horror show. It's based on a video game from a few years back, which you might have played. I've watched a couple of these so far, and it's really good. And our TV columnist, Beth Ackley, she's a big fan too. And she's been talking about it with mycologist and fungal pathogen expert, Matt Fisher of Imperial College London. And here's a teaser from the show when she asks him about possible human infection in real life. Is this actually something that we need to be worried about as climate change progresses? So what this show depicts is a a zombie fungus that's evolved to manipulate human behavior and to transmit. So first of all, this hypothetical fungus that they're playing around with has evolved the ability to grow at 37 degrees. Now, that's perfectly possible. There's over 350 species of fungal pathogen which can grow at that high temperature and can cause illness. 
in humans, but we know and understand those fungi, fungal infections pretty well. Certainly, global temperatures will exert a strong directional selection on that huge, deep well of fungal biodiversity that's out there. I mean, we know 150,000 species of fungi, but there's millions more. And some of those will evolve to grow at above 37 degrees, and then we're going to be exposed to new organisms. And perhaps some of them will have traits such as those that are described in The Last of Us. Now, as you know, this is a zombie fungus, so it actually manipulates the behaviour of the humans. And we know that fungi can readily do that. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Michael LePage, Leah Crane and James Deneen. And thanks to you for listening. Do subscribe to our show and we'll see you again soon. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.